0: little while, and I'll be preaching again at uh, right after Easter's for Easter for a couple weeks, so I won't have to go back and try to refresh your memory and trying to get the juices flowing with this with this passage. But just to remind you of what John, First John, is about is certainly. Um, understood to be this beloved disciple of Jesus, John, um, who now is uh, an elderly sage, uh, the remaining apostle of the apostles. And uh, he is now writing to this church which is believed to be in Ephesus and surrounding churches. Uh, It is believed that John wrote this from Ephesus as well. Ephesus uh, being one of the most uh, uh, very uh, sad, very uh, sinful place to live, uh, a place of cults that were just running rampant and uh, all kinds of uh, booths that I would call that if you follow the story of uh, Pilgrim's Progress at Vanity Fair, there would be all kinds of choices. There would be everything that you could have in your heart, could ever want, or your eyes could ever want to look upon, or not look upon, would be in this, this city of Ephesus uh, where um, John is writing to these, to these saints who he is very concerned. He's concerned about writing as a as a pastor, as a, uh, a a wise elder of the church, but also the apostle, and uh, is representative for all the apostles that came with him and, and before him. Um, this book was written somewhere between 85 and 95 A.D. and uh, the church of Ephesus was somewhere in the middle of the 50s. So we're having, you could see some, uh, a generation or so of people that were part of this church and then uh, are now in this church in this church that still exists. So uh, there, are, there can be, an, as is here, uh, new believers or people that have been with the church for a long period of time but as we remarked before, that there is this split, there is this uh, exodus of people that left this church because they are now being tantalized, they are now being uh, tempted to and have given over to these, this new teaching, these new teachings that are going on. Uh, because of all the different cults and all the different places where you can have your ears tickled. Uh, John is concerned that there were some who were amongst them and now have left them. And he is concerned about the welfare and the health of the church. And he is concerned that these others in the church do not get distracted or get alarmed because, as we have, as I've said before, this uh, proto-Gnosticism or this pre Real, really uh, pre-Gnosticism, before it became fully bloomed into a, a religion of Gnosticism. They believed in this knowledge. They believed in having a special revelation. They believed in a, a, a mystical type of revelation from God, uh, really not a personal relationship, but all about knowledge, and not everybody got it. Only a chosen few got it, and that everything is about the mind, is about uh, the, uh, the thoughts, uh, it's uh, uh, not about things, it's not about material things, uh, because the material world is evil, but, but the thoughts of, of uh, those spiritual things are, are really the reality of things. And that's where the people who are the knowledgeable ones, they dwell upon those things all the time and could care less what goes on in the horizontal. And then there are those who are uh, at this time too are are, uh, following docetism, which is the belief that Jesus did not have, uh, uh, who was considered to be God, did not have a real body but was a phantom or had a body, a ghost like body. uh, because the, the Greek word for docetism is dokeo, is which means to seem like, so it wasn't a real body, so God could never take on a real body, because if material is evil, then how could God take on a body? And then, as I've said before, you can see the, the implications of that, of not caring what takes place here, but everything is up here, uh, it's a free-for-all. It doesn't make any difference what you do with your body. It doesn't make a difference what you do with your things. It doesn't make a do- difference what you do with your life. It's all about the mind. It's all about these thoughts. It's all about having that that kind of relationship with this spiritual being that just gives you a special revelation. So there was a sense of, of um, a segregation. There was a sense of separate, separatism. People who were Separated themselves because they thought they were better than everybody else. And so they left. And so people were questioning, well, gee, do, how do I know? Well, you know, they, these people were looking, these people were looking for something new. That's one thing we need to realize is John's beginning of this, of this letter. He is very intentional, as we've read, and I'll read again today, is is very intentional to make sure that there is, real truth and not just truth in your head but this is something that is tactile something that is historical that we have seen that this is a a historical person who had a historical life who was real and was not a phantom or a ghost and it was that now that because you know these things you don't need to know anything else. You don't need to go anywhere else. You don't, know, you don't need to know or wonder that if God didn't give you everything you needed, God has given you everything you need and now have in the complete revelation of his word, and that you don't need to know anything more, and you cannot know anything more about God other than watching and looking to Jesus, because as we've read many times, Jesus is that perfect revelation of God. There is no one else coming that is going to enhance our knowledge about who God is, so don't be walking around with tickling ears, looking for someone to give you something new, because there's nothing new. There's books out there, The Lost Years of Jesus. Ain't nothing lost, folks. We got it. We don't need it. And John is concerned that you know, and that's that's what this book is about, is, is that we've, we've uh, talked about that several times. John will say the word no. We know. We know. I know you know. I want you to know that we know. And then there are these purpose clauses that we looked at last time. These purpose statements. Why did John write this? So we go to chapter 1, verse 3. Well, i will read this, this first passage. That which we was from the beginning, this is chapter 1 of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, that's which we have heard. Eyewitness testimony. If the Cutlers were here, we'd ask them, what's the most powerful testimony you can have? Is an eyewitness, a real eyewitness that has seen the events and heard what was said. That which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was real and manifest. We have seen it, as John writes in his prologue, in the beginning of uh, First in John chapter one. We have seen it. We have seen Jesus. We have seen His glory. And testify we witness to it and proclaim it to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made real and manifest incarnate to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you verse 3 so that a purpose clause so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And we are writing these things so that, here's another purpose clause, so that our joy may be complete. John is saying, if you want to know God, then you need to listen to what we say and what has been written in what the apostles have written and what the apostles have verified to be real that this is the revelation of God. And yes, we saw him die. We saw his life. We were in the tomb. We saw his resurrection. We saw his glorified body. We ate with him. We talked with him. We walked with him. After he had died, he's real. So this is why John is writing. He also, in chapter two, verse one, "My little children." He is very endearing. He has this great affection, a great closeness with this congregation or these congregations. They must know John because he, he has this endearing terms of calling them my children and "my beloved." And now he says, "Here, my little children." He's talking to. His church, he's talking to the people that know him. They must be very well aware of John's gospel. They must be very well aware of what John has spoken of and John has written. My little children, verse 1 of chapter 2. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then he writes another purpose clause, again for review. Chapter 5, this is really the key passage Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he also, there's another one which I totally not forgot, but didn't say last time, was also... Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Notice how he's contrasting himself and his listeners to the ones who say they are, the ones who said that they're in, the ones who feel and sense that they are in this place of higher knowledge and in a much more elite status with God. And he has given us understanding so that we may know, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is what John wants them to know. So we go back to chapter 1 and he says this in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we do have fellowship not only with one another, but with the apostles who have Fellowship with God. That's what he says here in the beginning. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And so by having fellowship with us, you too have fellowship with the Father through the Son. It's not this higher knowledge. It's not this special knowledge. It is the knowledge of a relationship that we now have that God so loved the world that he gave them his Son. So notice he's doing contrast, and John is full of contrast. There's there's light and darkness, and there's truth and there's lies. You're either a truth teller or you're a liar. John does these things bluntly. It's in your face. He He wants you to respond. He wants you to react. You either love something or you hate something. You're either truth or lies. You are either in the darkness or you're in the light. And so notice now this walking. It is, it is now abiding with, now remaining with, now s- spending time with Jesus. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, you make God a liar. God has gotten it wrong. God's diagnosis of you and me is wrong. So who wants to listen to a God that's got it wrong? Who do we think we are that we think we're right? You ever been told that? Who do you think you are that you are right? I got into that conversation this week in New York City. I was talking to a, uh, one of my colleagues who is practicing yoga and now is doing the chanting along with it, these Buddha chants. And I went, oh, and I, we're, we're very close. I've worked very close with her. And we can kid but be serious because I've been serious with her many times. And I said to her, oh, wait a minute. I want you to go home and cut down a tree, and then I want you to carve an image, and I want you to start praying to it. And she says, "You're talking about Buddha, aren't you?" I said, "I'm just talking about your idolatry here." And she laughed, and I just said, "You know," I, and, and I just said, "You know." She was, she was uh, doing, you know, the things that, that you do, I guess, the chanting and the burning of incense and doing these things. And we all laughed together because I said, I said that is so funny. She was showing me her video. It was, it was a riot. We were just laughing together. But I, she, knew, she knew I was serious. And then enters in another person. I have a really good relationship, but is a, a, a very strong personality. And this other person s- said we were laughing about it. She said, what are you laughing about? And, and, and it was because of what I said. And I just told her, um, about what I said about the prophets talking about praying to an image that they just carved out of, out of a tree. And uh, she goes, well, who do you think, why can you tell her that you're right and she's wrong? She has all the right in the world to do whatever she wants to. She has all the right in the world to believe. You know, don't you know that everybody has a different opinion about the Bible? There's Protestants, there's Catholics, there's there's." Baptists, there's Presbyterians, there's Congregationalists, there's this, there's that. There she goes. I said, so then I, when I tried to explain that she was completely wrong in her argument about separating the core belief of who Christ is among Christianity, I said, she just barreled right over the top of me. I still have the tread marks on my back. <laughs> and so we get along really well, but you can feel the tension. And I just went, I just... I just don't think you're right. I said, I, said, I it, if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't make a difference how you get there, I guess, right? I said, I don't know what your thinking of heaven is like. I don't know what you're thinking, what you're hoping of when you die, because when you die, you have something to think about, right? What's the next step there for, after you die? There's something, or is there nothing? It depends. I don't know. It just, I have to ask you that question. But if you don't, it doesn't make a difference where you go, but... My understanding of where I want to go depends upon what do I do with Jesus. And I think that's where I'm thinking you think you want to go because her father just had passed away. And I said, I'm thinking you're thinking that's where you want to go or something good afterwards. How do you know that? But yeah, but you can't say that to her. Oh, it was it was kind of heated. So and after it was all done, I ended up sending a smiley face and she sends me back two smiley faces. So we're okay for now. But who do I think I am? But it all comes down to this. It's like we have a person that testifies to the truth. We have people that tell us. Paul writes, he says, he, he writes this and he says, there are people, go ask them. They've witnessed Christ. They've seen Jesus. They saw him die. Luke's, Luke, the historian, the physician, but the, the the, the, uh, the historian says, I've investigated these things, go and ask people. But nobody, nobody refutes, have you ever seen George Washington? I've never had, I've never seen George Washington, I've never been to the moon. I, but I trust other people's pictures and I trust other people's comments and, and witnessing and the stories of eyewitnesses of who George Washington was. And you and I know that some of the stories about George Washington aren't true but they believe in George Washington. So we have here people who do not want to hear the truth. They won't even take the time to hear the truth, and who, am I gonna convince them? Are you gonna convince them? Not even to listen, Not, not to understand, but to listen. Unless God changes that person's heart, to want to really inquire of what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter how articulate I am or not, or how articulate you are or not. So John is saying here, it's about the walk. And as he says it, as we looked at uh, chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's, it does matter what your life looks like. It does matter what you do horizontally. It does matter what you think about because what you think about changes how you live your life. And so he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, they have an advocate. They have a lawyer. They have one, someone who testifies on our behalf with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's righteous because he is perfect in every way. And he is the propitiation. He is the one that now has turned our unfavorable status, and ones who deserve wrath now has turned our relationship with God completely around, and now we are in favor with God. We are now favorable to God. We no longer have to be afraid of God. We no longer fear the wrath of God. There is no longer any condemnation, Paul writes in Romans. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if, We put our words and our thoughts to action. If we live out a life that actually is full of thankfulness and an understanding that we get the gospel, that we don't deserve it, but yet we got it, a gift that keeps on giving, a gift that lasts for all eternity, and it's ours. And we don't deserve it, and we've gotten it. So we live a life of gratitude. And we are obedient. It's not something that we ought to do because ought to do something is not gratitude. It's my wife's anniversary, or it's our anniversary, or it's her birthday. Should I? Well, it was. You know that whole debacle. But it was our anniversary, and you understand that I don't go out and buy her something or get her a rose or go out to dinner with her or something because I feel obligated like I ought to. Here, Suze, I ought to give you this. It's our anniversary. Well, that's go over large. Yeah, like a ton of bricks. There's nothing ought about it. We do it out of genuine love for God, out of love for who he is, out of love that he sees our sinful heart, he sees the, the, the heap, the dung heap of our righteousness as filthy rags and still wants to love us and send his son to die for us. Whoever says I know him but does not live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. John is big on the love of God. And Satan loves that phrase, God is love. Because it can be twisted and perverted in anything that you and I want it to be if we don't have our eyes in the scriptures to understand what love is. Whoever says that he abides and remains and is connected with Jesus ought to walk in the same way that he walked. It's about the walk of life. This is what I was talking before. John is taking these people back to the basics. He's taking them back to the the ABCs of the faith. And I've told you this before, and again, we're going to talk about it because John's book is, is just full of this. These three things, these threes, ex- three examinations, these three tests, these three ways of letting ourselves know and the world know that we are followers of Christ. If we are obedient, if we love, right, obedient, love, and if we know the truth, So why John starts off in the very beginning is saying, this is all about truth. And so what discipleship is, is what we talked about before, this is a document about discipling. John takes these people, young and old, Mature and new in the faith, and he goes right back to the beginning. He says, we need to go back to the beginning because that's where the strength of your faith is going to be. This is where your ears are not going to be itching because they don't need to itch. You have everything you need to know. And so it is about this walk. And so he says, we need to walk like Jesus did. And so now, he takes us to this passage today, and he says... Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment. Now, this this section is kind of bizarre because he's talking about something old and something new. Is it old or is it new? And the answer is yes. And then he talks about in verses 12 to 14, he talks about little children, he talks about fathers, and then he talks about young men, and then he repeats himself. So he says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. You see those two phrases there? In him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light, and remember we were talking about in the beginning light meaning God is light, and there's no darkness in him, so there can't be a desire for us and a preponderance of us and a wanting of us to stay in that darkness. So we try to avoid with all of our heart but John writes to us and tells us that we cannot be perfect by removing ourselves from the things of darkness. Because it is not what goes into a man that makes him evil, it's what comes out of him. And so within our heart, we struggle with sin. But we don't want to struggle with sin, but we do. And John told us, and it's going to happen, and we are forgiven for that. If we ask for forgiveness, God is very willing and desiring to purify us from unrighteousness. That process of sanctification so that someday when he returns or we die, we no longer deal with sin. Sin is gone. Jesus paid the price. It is gone. That's when we will have complete victory over sin. So he says here, verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for a scandal. That's the word. The Greek word is scandal. There in him there is no stumbling. People who love each other do not throw something in front of you to cause you to stumble. Now, now you and I know that we don't literally throw a log or something in front of you, but that does something that, in your life, that causes you to wonder, causes you to think about your faith, says something, or causes you to turn your eyes off of Jesus of the Bible, This is what was happening to the people who were leaving. These people were leaving because they found something new. And John is saying, you got the new. You don't need it. You already know it. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And this walking again, this pedestrian concept, the walk In the darkness, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It was with the two people I was talking with in New York City. You give them the light, and what do they do? They want to go back to the darkness, they don't even consider what you're saying. They don't even want to ponder on what's being said. They just know that they have an opinion, and doggone it, this is America, and I have a right to my opinion. So this first section here is about, as this, he says, this new commandment. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, from, the, from John's Gospel? We see this law, I mean, it's, the commandment is, is a law, and, and what... What we see in this, these writings so far, there has not been one thing that John has really told us to do, has he? He hasn't told us to do anything. He doesn't tell us to do anything in a command form than in verse 15, where he says, do not love. That's an imperative. Up until this point, he hasn't given us imperative. He has just stated a fact. This is who you are. And if you are not like this, then this is who you are. Turn with me to uh, John's Gospel. We go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the utmost. He showed the full extent of his love by showing how to live And showing that he loved them so much to die in their place. That's the extent of his love. And he does that not with a sword, not with a weapon, not with a throne. But what does he do it with? A bowl and a towel. Verse 2, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things into his hands and had come from, had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and when he poured out into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, "Lord, do you wish my feet? Do you wish to wash my do you wash my feet?" Jesus answered, "What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand." Peter said to him, "You shall never wash my feet, Jesus." Jesus answered him, "If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me." And Peter said to him, "Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head." And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew that one who was going to betray, that was the one why he said, Not all of you are clean. We see this type of love that Jesus is talking about, and John is now writing in his gospel and his writing there is that this is not a new commandment. Loving your neighbor and loving your brother and sister is not new. The Old Testament is full of it. It talks about it through the law, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That book that many people just run through Because it can be so boring about all these sacrifices, but ultimately, chapter 16 is the very center and core of that chapter, of that book that talks about God's atoning sacrifice for sinners, for his people. And so the law is not just cold, heartless law, but it's a law that points to the law of love that God has for us. He exhibits that. He says, you are miserable sinners, and you deserve to die, but I'm making a way for you. I'm giving you a sacrificial system. I'm giving you a representative to realize how awful sin is, how awful the debt is, and what has to happen is that someone has to die for this transgression. And that's what the whole book of the law is about. God showing his creation, that we are created in the image of God, and that in chapter 3 we have fallen, and that he provides redemption for us. And that's the love that God gives to us. That is the law of love. But in Christ, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. It's not new, but it's it's now reflected and illustrated in a new and perfect way by being a servant. And Jesus getting on his knees and showing the full extent of his love, not being a king on a throne, though he is, but taking a knee and washing the feet or serving his people who deserve to wash his feet, yet he turns around and loves them with the full extent of his love and becomes a servant. That's the love that John is talking about here. And he says, I'm not writing a new one, but it's an old one because you've already heard it from Jesus. I've already written about it. But it is new, is it not? Because he says, and as, as uh, Paul writes, he says, the old has come, The old is going, the new has come, the old is passing away. So the kingdom of light in Christ is coming and shining through Christ, shining through the Bible, shining through our lives. We are not the light, but we are reflecting the light of Christ that we've been given And so that says the commandment that John is telling them. He says, but this is an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. And the old commandment is what you've heard. I am writing to you which is true in him. So John is writing about this this desire to show him, show the the world and show these people that it is not about being better. It is not about being one-upsmanship. It is not being elite. It is about... Loving one another and loving each other. So the test of, we saw in the beginning was obedience. If you don't walk like Christ, if you don't obey God's commandments, you're not a believer. That's test number one. And now he's talking about what's test number two. The test number two is, he says this. He says that you need to love one another. You need to show in detail and great illustration how much you love God by showing love to one another. And so that's what he is saying here. Verse 10 goes on and says, whoever loves his brother now shows that he remains in and desires to be in the light of Christ. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. I don't want you to stumble by something that I do or say. That's why we need to be careful that what we do is biblical. But you and I know that we're not perfect. And it is this community of faith where we come with each other to realize that I'm a sinner. And that you're a sinner. And that love covers a multitude of sin. You understand that I'm going to do this. I'm going to make mistakes. And I understand that you are too. And so this is a place that we know what grace is and we know what love is. And we're willing to absorb that love with for each other because Christ has absorbed it all for us. So if we start nitpicking and if we start pointing fingers, no examples in my head whatsoever, folks. But I've been in the church for a long time. Doesn't take long for someone to come up with a thumb drive. Put it in your brain and pull up everything, everybody you've ever done in their life. I remember going to my class reunion and somebody brought something up. Something that was said in a locker room and didn't, and said it in public to everyone. And I went, wow, I made an impression. Our memory is good. The, The Bible tells us here that if we don't do that, folks, now we may not intentionally do that, and that's one thing that we have to understand here. It's not intentional. It may not be always intentional. It may be, but it may not always be intentional. But if we don't actively show love to one another, we may actually be showing that we don't love them at all. Do you love me? Has anybody ever asked you that? Husbands, has your wives ever asked you, do you love me? Do you love me, dad? Do you love me? Do you? If we don't actively tell them, they wonder. Now, they know you're there, and they know you're present, but they want a demonstrative expression of that love. And John even goes to this tremendous length of calling it hate which he wants us to be shocked in. Now, this uh, commentator writes something that I thought is so good. His name is David Jackman, and he says this. He says, um, It is the positive activity of outgoing love to which John is encouraging us in verse 10. There is a certain sort of Christian piety which imagines that security is to be found by being hermetically sealed off from other people, even from other Christians, in a recluse detachment. In this way, the individual is safe from the infection of those who do not believe as strongly or purely as he imagined he does. But But it is not loving my brother or sister who also seeks to walk in the light who needs my fellowship. The more the Christian wraps up himself, Concentrating on the cultivation of his own character or the preservation of his own virtue and less clearly will he see the light. He has become so self-centered and will not be long before self-love takes over. And the greatest enemy of real love is self-love. That is the root of hatred. Love and light go together. If people love, if we love people, we take care to avoid sinning against them and causing them to stumble. We want to encourage them and build them up. But lack of love distorts our perspective and blinds our vision. We feel to we begin to feel at home in the darkness. We become used to groping our way through life Constantly stumbling and being ensnared by all kinds of problems. Such people are often unaware of how dark it is and how short-sighted they have become. The light that is ignored soon ceases to strike us. That's what he is talking about, hatred. Now, he's going to talk about pain. He's going to talk about that later on. So he's going to give examples of what kind of hatred it is, but he wants to get their attention. And he's not saying that they aren't loving one another. He is telling them to be careful. Remember how much you love one another. And this is where he goes on. He says, because Jesus loves us that much. Now notice what he goes on to this little verses 12, 13, and 14. Now in your Bibles, and in, in, in my Bible and, and, and other translations, you see how it's broken off, how these verses are almost poetic. They're, they're broken off in, a, in, a, in a, like stanzas. And, and uh, what uh, John is doing is John is, is writing this book not to challenge people, but he's there to encourage people. He is there to strengthen us, them. He he is there to disciple them. He wants them to remember the first of principles. So notice he goes now and he he gives us almost a a poem as the ESV and other translations treat it as such. And notice what he says. He then takes almost an excursion from this uh, uh, letter that he's writing and talking about love. And then he goes on and he says this. He goes, but... Let me, say, let me tell you something I've noticed. He goes, I am writing to you, little children. He's talking about everybody in the church. I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. And not because of, there's anything special for in you or for you, but he says, because it's for his sake. Ezekiel 26, he talks about giving, he talks about the uh, this whole new covenant, that he's going to wipe out your sins. And he says, I'm not doing it because I'm you. I'm doing it because of my namesake. Because I want the world to know and understand the kind of love that I have for you. And so he says, I want you little children to know. Everybody in the congregation, he's writing to the church, I want you to know that your sins are forgiven for God's sake. And then he says, I'm writing to you fathers, and he's not talking about men here. He's just talking about people who are mature in the faith, people who have been around a while. It's great to have a church with people who have been with Christ for years because that's where the experience comes from. That's where the wisdom comes from. This is the people that you go to. When you don't know an answer or you're perplexed and you know they've been there before, you go to those people. They're the ones who understand now the faithfulness of God. They've been through the trenches. They understand that God is faithful. And so he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. It's not you know about him, but you know him. And you know him from the very beginning. It's a long time you've known him. It's just not something new. You've known. You've been with him. You understand that sometimes the dark providence of God comes in. You under know. You understand and know that there are times when you do not know what God's hands are doing. But you and I, as faithful believers, he says, understand. The ones who have been in the trenches understand the very heart of God. So we don't question God's goodness. We don't question God's love for us. He says, "You can't. He, he's given His Son. Your sins are forgiven. What other sign does He have to give us? And then he says, "I'm writing you to you, to you young men. These are the newer believers in the church. These are the people that are He says, "I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. You are finding a sense of strength. You are soaring like eagles. The book of Isaiah says, you are the ones who are who are just charged up. There are people, older believers still have a deep faith and still have a deep love for God, but there's that sense of just going along and they're in cruise control. And new believers, like when I remember I was, I was in high gear all the time. Right? You're just amped because it's new, it's good. Man, you can't, who wants to be in first and second gear? Man, you're a wuss, you don't go anywhere. This is where you feel the power and the love and the excitement of being a Christian. Believe, us white-haired believers understand that. But we don't need it, because we have already know it. That's what John is writing to. He's going back and he's saying, thank John, he's saying to the church, John is saying to the church, thank God for the church. Wow, that's that's a miracle in some churches, right? Thank God for the church. He is saying, be thankful that God has given you a place that have these people there. And then he says it again, not that because he's old and he forgets, you know, sometimes we do that. I already said that. Sorry, I'll say it again. He's not, that's not what happens. He's just trying again to say, I write to you fathers because you know him from the beginning and I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. How does a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 1 tells us that, that we meditate upon the word of God day and night. Lord, your word is a light, A lamp. This is what he is talking about. These are the people that make up the church, the people that love Jesus. These are the people that covenant with one another and say, I am here. We have made a covenant with each other, believers, people who are members of the church. We are here to covenant with each other because we need each other to live a life that is pleasing to God. Without the church, folks, we cannot do the walk. I'm telling you, we can't. And so he says in last, in the last part here, we're talking about love here, there is a love that God hates. That sounds crazy, does it not? There is a love that God hates. Do not. This is the only imperative here. And, it's, and there's only nine or ten imperatives in the entire letter. So this book isn't about a how-do. It's telling you this is the facts, Jack. Take this to the bank. This is what it's all about. Do not love the world. Do not court its intimacy. Do not find favor in it. Do not covet its prizes. I, I've got these written in my Bible. These are things that I, I write in here. My, if you see this, i got scribbles all over my book because it's all about I need to remember this stuff when I'm... You know, you think I remember this stuff all the time? You people are crazy. I've got to write these notes down in here because I can remember when I'm reading my Bible that I've said these things to you. Don't adopt its ideals. That's the love. He died for the world. He's not talking about material things. He's talking about the goals and the values and the standards that the world wants us to live by. Who am I? that I should tell somebody the truth. Who am I to tell someone how they get to know Jesus? Who am I to tell them that Jesus is the only way? Who am I? What standard do you live by, Jim? Where, do you, where are you so narrow-minded? You're so intolerant. And you've heard me say this before, the only tolerant thing in the world is a septic tank. It takes everything. It doesn't discriminate against anything. That's what I told somebody who came to my house and visited and was visiting and said something about being open-minded. And I pointed it to that thing out in the grate out in the road and says, that's the only thing that's indis- intolerable. <coughs> You're tolerable. That's, that takes everything. Its mouth is wide open all the time. And that's what the world tells us that we need to be. And if we hold our convictions, we're a bunch of lunatics who wants to be here. You want to be a part of an intolerant group of people that tell you that same-sex marriage is wrong? Tell you that abortion is an an abomination to God? To tell you can change your sex type or you can have the right to find out your body parts and still look down and put an X in a box that you don't want to identify yourself with? That's sanity? Sanity? Don't love those things. Don't be attracted to those things. Don't think that you're less than a person if you don't have those things. And sometimes, folks, you and I know that that can be a lonely place to be. When you're in a crowd, you may be the only one. Working in a big corporation and work for businesses, man, you don't always fit in. You don't know the latest places to go. You don't know the latest drinks. You don't know the latest clothes. You don't know the latest this and the latest that because I don't give a rip. It doesn't make, I don't tick that way. I don't think that way. And I don't need to be worried about it. I go back feeling sorry for them, not because I'm better, but because I've been set free from those things. And it's not to say that I don't struggle with these things. I've got a sinful heart. I have lusts and I have passions and my eyes go. As he's going to talk about here, he is saying, do not love the world for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. My heart has desires. And don't look at these things because when you look with your eyes, those things become even more attractive. Because don't love the world because it is not from the Father, but from the world. And the reason that we don't love is because this world is going to be disintegrated. It's all going away. As, we, as Brandon did a great job talking about hell, it's going to change everything. Even the creation around us that God says is good is going to be better. But unbelievers aren't going to enjoy it. Only us. Because we live in a world now is already, but yet not, under, not fully the kingdom of God. Yet we understand who the king is and we understand that we are living in the kingdom realm of Jesus now. And we understand that we do not have to worry about what comes in the future, even though it frightens us a little bit what's going on. We do not need to worry about those things as others do. We do not need to know what's on the other side because we've been told. In my conversation, she said to me, well, how do you know that somebody's come back from the dead? And I went, oh, I happen to know somebody that has. Oh, but the Bible's been written by men. That was, you notice, boy, they went right for the juggler. I'm not listening to that book. Oh, okay. So you, I mean... They just don't want to know. So all the world, and the world is passing away with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Meaning that whoever wants the heart of God, God will give them the desires of that heart. And so that's why we have each other to make sure that our desires are kept in check, and that's why discipleship is so important, because that's where intimacy takes place, because you and I may see each other, and we don't have a thought in our mind what you're thinking about, and what you're struggling with, and what things are you fighting in your life. We say, hi, good morning, how are you? It's great, have a great week, we love you, we pray for you, we can help you out, but we don't really know what's going on, and this is the place, folks, that we need to find those people that we can really open up to and talk to and embrace and come to the point where we can share what's going on within us knowing that we will not be judged because they too are struggling with sin in their own lives. That's discipleship. That's what your life is on top of someone else's life upon the life of Christ. That's what makes a church that disciples so different because it 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 is not just about walking in and out and just doing the things that we're it's not playing church it is being the church it is the place where i can come with the heaviness of my sin and come to someone who wants to pray for me and who is not going to say really that's what you're thinking You're a Christian you're not supposed to be thinking that stuff have you been told that stuff before yet people saying well That's not what a Christian does. I understand that. That's why I'm struggling with it That's why I want you to pray for me. That's what John is saying. This is real love We've been given the king we've been given the kingdom we've been given a king we don't need anything else We don't need the standards of the world We just need to glorify God and we need someone and a group of people called the church to help us walk day by day in that walk that is pleasing to God because our love and our affection are for him. In closing, my Scottish friend, pastor, gave me this insight from an old, old Scottish preacher, the expulsive power of a new affection. The love of the world cannot expunge by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but it may not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. The heart cannot be prevailed upon to part with the world by a simple act of resignation. But may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit into its preference of another who shall subordinate subordinate the world and bring it down from its wanted ascendancy? If the throne which is placed there must have an occupier, and the tyrant that now reigns has occupied it wrongfully he may not leave leave a bosom who would rather detain him than be left in desolation. But he may not give way to the lawful sovereign appearing with every charm that can secure his willing admittance. In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascended object, it is to fasten it in positive love to another." that then it is not by exposing the worthiness or the worthlessness of the former, meaning the world, by, a, by addressing to the eye the worth and the excellence of the latter, that the old things are to be done away with and all things are to become new, to obliterate all present affections by simply expunging them, And so as to leave that seat unoccupied would be to destroy the old character and substitute no new character in its place. But when they take their departure upon the invitation of other visitors, when they resign their sway to the power and the predominance of a new affection, when abandoning the heart to solitude, They merely give place to a successor who turns out to be a busy residence of desire and interest and expectation as before. There is nothing in all of this to thwart or to overbear any of the laws of our sentiment nature. And we see how in fullest accordance with the mechanism of the heart, a great moral revelation may be made to take place upon it. We trust with all, we trust we excuse me this we trust will explain the operation of the charm which occupies the effectual effectual preaching of the gospel the love of god and the love of the world are two affections not merely in state of rivalship but in a stave of enmity and so that they are irreconcilable and they cannot dwell in the same bosom we have already affirmed how impossible we are we it is from the heart by any innate uh, desire of its own to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to the wilderness. The heart that is so not constituted, the only way to dispose of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. And that's what he is talking about here, is saying that there's going to be an affection, so we... Cast off that old affection and now replace it with a new love. And that is the love of God through Jesus Christ. Just by telling ourselves no is not enough, we need to exhibit that love to each other. So then that we then are worthy. We then are are, uh, much more able to help each other as we struggle with this desire for the world it's in us it will not go away folks just by the sense of not doing it but we need to replace it with the love and that's where he is saying and you folks have it I know you have it he says so I'm not here to tell you to do anything but just realize that you have it in Christ let's pray Heavenly Father We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the grace and mercy that you've given to us. We pray, Father, that you would be with us as we continue to try to walk in this life, as we continue to walk in the light. We thank you, Father, that you love us when we stumble. We thank you, Father, that you have brought people in our life who love us when we stumble. So, Lord, we pray that we would be people who love people when they stumble as well. Because you love us that much, Lord, we pray that the world will know us because we love one another. Father, I ask that you make that possible. Bring others here, Lord, that would desire to be loved with a love that is not of this world, but a love that comes from you, dear Jesus. And we ask it in your name. Amen.